Welcome to Elevate L&D, conversations with Cincinnati's learning and development leaders, brought to you by the Greater Cincinnati Association for Talent Development. In this special extended episode, we'll take a deep dive into culture and how it can help or hinder an organization's purpose and its success. How do leaders influence culture and how is culture experienced throughout the organization? Our host, Elisha Hill, Director of Leadership Development at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, talks with Frank Burroughs, PhD, founder of Clear on Purpose, LLC, and Aubrey Witte, Talent Management Consultant at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. They will discuss how culture impacts the bottom line and how to better align an organization's culture to its purpose. Let's join the conversation. Culture is an ecosystem of shared beliefs and values established by leaders and then communicated and reinforced through various methods, ultimately shaping employees' perceptions, behaviors, and understanding. This is a definition that comes from SHRM, the Society for HR Management. And I found it in an article titled, Understanding and Developing Organizational Culture. Now, although there are many different ways to define culture, I can really appreciate this definition because it identifies three different things. It identifies the what, which are the shared beliefs and values, the who, which are leaders and employees, and the how, communication and reinforcement that shapes a culture. Welcome to this episode of Elevate L&D, and I'm your host, Elisha Hill. Since 2009, I have been on a mission to equip organizational and community leaders with the knowledge and capabilities to be transformational stewards of their people and businesses. Today, I serve as the Director of Leadership Development at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, as a board member of the Butler County Board of Developmental Disabilities, and as a volunteer for the One Source Center for Nonprofit Excellence. Before I invite our guest to join me in unpacking this somewhat nebulous concept, let me start by sharing a story about an employee named Tina and the impact culture had on her. As Tina sat in the front row of the auditorium listening to the facilitator welcome over 50 new hires, she was captivated by the sincerity in his voice when he said, we are committed to nurturing your talents and exposing you to diverse opportunities. You can have a successful career here. For the next 30 minutes, Tina listened to employees describe their experience navigating a variety of roles and departments. They shared advice about networking and emphasized that they too could be afforded the same opportunities if they showed up each day with a positive attitude and an unwavering work ethic. The new hires applauded the panelists as they finished sharing their career journeys, and the facilitator dismissed them for lunch. Tina headed for one of the doors that led into the hallway. When she crossed the threshold, she was greeted by a wall of photos. She could tell that some of them dated back to the early 1900s, and the individuals had been leaders. As she scanned each headshot, she could sense the light inside her grow dim. Feelings of otherness came over her as she stared at the wall of white men staring back at her. Tina thought about the words the facilitator said just minutes before she was greeted by these faces. We are committed to nurturing your talents and exposing you to diverse opportunities. As a woman of color, to Tina, that wall told a different story. Instead, that wall reinforced the message that there were limits to her growth at that organization. This message was also reinforced during Tina's tenure at that organization when it became the norm that she was the only person of color in most meetings. Other messages that made her question if the organization was congruent in their beliefs was when she went on maternity leave and was only given three weeks of paid leave. Additionally, when Tina told her manager she was earning her master's degree, her manager accused her of trying to take her job. As Tina navigated through these moments, it gradually became more difficult to ignore the turmoil she felt inside when thinking about her career at that organization. 
Two years later, Tina could no longer ignore the signs that the organization wasn't the right place for her. And so she left. So what did culture have to do with Tina's experience? What does culture have to do with any of us? One of our guests joining me in today's conversation is Frank Burroughs. Frank Burroughs has been a scientist and an R&D director for approximately 30 years. He is an inventor on nine issued patents, and he moved from R&D to HR to help leaders develop intentionally in their roles, holding the position of global talent management director for a Fortune 100 company. Most recently, he led the culture and development function at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. And he is the owner of Clear On Purpose LLC, a consulting company. He's very passionate about intentional development, making himself and other leaders better in their families, businesses, and cultures. Also joining us is another guest, my colleague and friend, Aubrey Witte. Aubrey wants to help build a world where innovative ideas, voracious appetites for trivia, and unencumbered nap times rule. With more than 10 years of experience in talent management and leadership development, she has a passion for studying, practicing, and helping educate others on what it takes to lead effectively. Professionally, she has been with Cincinnati Children's for four years and has a master's degree in organizational and health communications. She is particularly excited for opportunities like this to speak to you today and to just let her nerd flag fly is what she says. So Frank and Aubrey, thank you so much for accepting the invitation to not only talk about culture from an organizational and a team level, but also share some stories about how culture has impacted you personally. So Frank, I'm going to ask you to just say a few words and share anything else that you want to share with our audience. And Aubrey, you do the same. Oh, thank you, Alicia. It's a pleasure to be here. And this topic is one that's um, very important to me, not by choice, just because it is important. You can pretend or deny or, or push down the impact of culture, a again, at any level, at the family level, at the business level, whatever. But it's there and it will dominate the landscape and have its way. So this is a topic that I'm passionate about by necessity because it's one that you ignore at your own peril. But the flip side of, of understanding the power of culture is understanding how to harness it in service to your purpose or your, your mission or your reason for being, again, as, as a family or, or any other unit of, of society. So I'm just delighted to be here and can't wait to learn from you and Aubrey. Thank you. I couldn't have said it better myself, Frank. Uh, it's a pleasure to be talking with you guys today about a topic that is just near and dear to my heart and one that I think impacts everyone, um, whether or not we really actively are thinking about it day to day, right? Culture is um, it's an amalgamation of lots of different behaviors um, from others that we experience and the way that we show up as well. And so to Frank's point, it's really an unavoidable <laughs> situation. So the question is not how do we avoid culture, but how do we make it really work for us? And how do we know that we're in a culture that supports the best version of ourselves? Wow. I love that. Thank you so much, Frank and Aubrey. You know, one of the things I have appreciated about our conversations that we've had about culture is that not only are we, the three of us, very passionate about this topic, but we understand the breadth and depth of how culture can impact the people within it and can impact even the work and the productivity and the well-being of, of individuals. And so I, I really am excited about this discussion, and I'm so excited that the two of you have said yes to having yet another conversation with me about culture. I mean, I feel like we've had tons of them, but it has uh, it has not been recorded before. So, so I will say that our audience is in for a treat because we have so much that we are going to unpack as it relates to culture. And so let's go ahead and dive into our first point about culture. And the first point is you already always have culture. You already always have culture. And so I'm going to start with you, Frank, uh, because this is something that you have said plenty of times. I mean, 
you always have mentioned culture as this this concept, as this thing that surrounds us, and it's always there. So I uh, would love for you to unpack that a little bit more. What does that statement mean? You already always have culture. Yeah, thanks, Alicia. One of my favorite, I'll call it bumper stickers or, or sayings around this topic, goes something like, culture eats strategy for breakfast or for lunch, you know, fill in whatever word you want. That was attributed often to Peter Drucker. Culture always overshadows and and overpowers all the other management and even leadership uh, efforts that we try to put in place. So as I said a few minutes ago, you ignore it at your own peril or wish it weren't there or wish it were different uh, at your own peril. You, You have to acknowledge what it is, and then think about what it needs to be for you to accomplish your goals as an organization, whatever organization that might be. So because it's always on and always working, it's a 24-7 phenomenon, it's very different than all the other, what I would call interventional approaches. We're going to have a leadership development program or course. Okay, great. We go to it for a day or a week or whatever, and it's an intervention, and it's quickly forgotten, or maybe it has some residual effect, but the culture is always developing your leaders for good or for for not good, I'll say. So when people say we need to have a leadership development program, I usually say you already have one. Oh, really? Where? I said your culture. Your culture is developing your leaders right now. Whether that's aligned to your purpose or counter to it is what you've got to start asking yourself and, and unraveling and figuring out because it is happening. So culture is always on. It's shaping the experience we all have. It's developing leaders. It's developing or not employees. It's causing employees to stay and be excited or like your story about Tina, perhaps causing them to question, is this the place for me? What's my fit here? What's my role? And I'll just add before uh, we maybe kick it to Aubrey, in your initial definition from Sherm, you stated or, or that definition stated that culture is established by leaders and then communicated in a variety of ways. And I want to come back and touch on that and say that that may be the intent and the desire and what we'd like to have happen. So there is an intentional maybe establishment of a culture by by some leading part of the organization that's most often manifest in things like policy. And from your story, that would be how much maternity leave we pay for, what's our vacation policy, you know, et cetera, et cetera, the, the thousands of company policies that, that people run into. That's the intentional part that creates a culture. The other part is how leaders behave and whether those match or mismatch the intentional things like the policy. So if leaders say we want to be a certain way and then the policies are all counter to that, we know which one we believe. We believe what the policies are, what we see. People say we want to empower employees, but everything that the policies do disempowers employees. That's a a disconnect. And the real culture is the one that people react to. Let me just say it that way. That's a good measure of culture is what, what will people react to? And that drives their behavior and it creates norms for them to decide whether they want to continue to be part of or want to exit from because those norms are not suitable for them. So remember, there's the culture that you intend and there's the culture that you actually create by your behaviors and just acknowledging that the two are not always the same and deciding if that's a place you need to correct is a great place to start. If you're saying to the point of, the, of our title, what's culture got to do with it? Start with there. What culture did we say we have and what one do we really have and what's causing that difference? Is the difference big enough to react to and do we need to change? So. I'll uh, let somebody else have the floor for a moment, Alicia, but thank you for uh, the question. I love a lot of what you said, Frank. Um, And one of the things that stood out to me about what you said is the intentional aspect. So we have an intention and most organizations do. That's often reinforced through policies, procedures, and stating what our intention is. But there are sometimes unintended consequences to those intentional policies that we've put in place or procedures or even the execution or how those policies are carried out at times can sometimes create some 
unintended results. And so it all plays a role in shaping our culture. And that actually leads me to my next question for you, Aubrey. It's obviously easy to think about culture as it's happening to us, just like Tina and all the examples of how she was experiencing the culture around her. I think it helped to shape this mindset or the perception that it was happening to her. But as employees, we play a role, right? We play a role in how that is shaped. And so wondering kind of what your thoughts are and what our role is, what part do we play in shaping it? And what does that look like? A hundred percent. I think that everybody has a vested interest in the culture that they're a part of. And I want to make sure that there's an understanding that culture is big, right? We don't work alone in any role that we have. We have to rely on systems. We have to rely on teams. We have to rely on people that we know, and we have to rely on people that we've never met before. So there's a lot of interdependencies related to creating and maintaining a culture. However, we are not passive, right? We don't play a passive role in this. We actively are engaging with it in some way. And so it's one of the most maddening aspects about culture. It's also one of the most exciting aspects about culture is it's not static. And with every person that joins your organization or joins your team, they influence it. I like to think of individuals joining an organization or a team as as falling into one of three categories. Either they support the status quo, right? They they really fit right into how things are done. Um, So they don't ruffle any feathers. Or they're a cultural additive. They change the culture in some way, in a positive way for their team or for others in the organization. Or sometimes they're a cultural detractor, right? They behave in ways that the big culture, what I call the capital C culture, doesn't like and doesn't really adhere to. And so it's important, I think, to recognize that we all play a role in influencing culture. Now, overall, culture is bigger than any one of us. And so I liken it to a wave. And so the question is, is, you know, when you're caught in a big wave, you have choices, right? Do you swim with it? Do you swim against it? Do you try and ride a surfboard on it? Um, There are different ways that we can go about working with culture, but also recognizing that we do influence it in the way that we show up and in the way that we behave. So I think it's kind of a both and, right? (laughs) To some extent, Mm -hmm. it might feel that things are happening to us, um, but with some awareness and some reflection, I think it's important that people recognize that, you know, how you show up and how you work with your team and your leaders and your organization does influence the culture around you. It may be in very small and incremental ways, um, but culture is not unchangeable, right? Even quote unquote bad cultures can change and have changed, um, but it requires an acknowledgement and an awareness and intention behind where it is you want to go. So to Frank's point, are we aligned? Are we saying that if this is the culture we want to build with intention, Are the ways that we're behaving, are the policies we're putting into place, are the rules that we are prescribing to people in alignment with those things? Is there congruence there? Yeah, you mentioned two words that I think we can we can even kind of talk more about with this next story. I know Frank has a story that he wanted to share about his experience and Two of the things that you mentioned was awareness and reflection. And so when we think about just our role we play in our culture and creating that culture, shaping that culture, reinforcing that culture, whether we're employees or whether also we have a leadership role within the organization, it requires a level of awareness of our own behaviors and how we're engaging in that culture with others, how we're reinforcing certain things that are either that go with the culture, that's a status quo, or that's countercultural. And uh, Frank, uh, you had a story that you shared earlier um, in another conversation that you and I had about how you were in a leadership role and you had certain behaviors, you were displaying certain behaviors that seemed to be a bit countercultural. So can you share that story with our listeners today? Because I really think it helps to illuminate what we're talking about and why culture is so important for us to have that level of awareness and intentionality. Sure. Thanks. Thanks again, Alicia. What this illustrates to me as I think back on this, which is now 20 some years ago, is that culture 
can call us to a high expectation, but that culture also serves as a, a goad or a, a, a sharp instrument that pokes us to live to that when that's a little uncomfortable because it's sort of the old saying of, you know, talking a good story versus really living one or, or talking a good game versus playing one. Yep. I was part of a, of a leadership team. There were about six R&D directors who led a large organization, hundreds of employees. We each had a, a department or two in this uh, amalgamation of a function. And we intentionally agreed, so this is the good part, we said, what kind of a culture do we need to have? What kind of leadership culture is it going to take for us to be successful? When I say us, I don't mean the six of us as leaders, but the us, the large function to do what the organization has challenged us to do. So we literally said, here's, here's what we have to do and be. And just to summarize it quickly, I'll say we knew we needed a high-performance culture, one that called out the highest in expectations of everyone, including ourselves. And the subtext of that meant that low performance or performance that didn't meet that needed to be dealt with in a, you know, within our cultural norms, which, which didn't mean in a punitive way or a negative way, but we would not ignore poor performance. Let me just say it that way. We would invest in people's development and get performance at the individual and group levels where it needed to be. So as it turned out, we met monthly on just people performance issues. We dedicated one meeting a month to just that. And that could be good things too. This isn't, you know, who's about to be terminated. This could be who's ready for a promotion. Who can we invest more in? You know, so this wasn't necessarily negative, although my part of it in this story was. So I had a direct report employee. This is one of my direct reports who served not only my departments, but also played some leveraged, what we called leverage roles into some other departments. So when she wasn't performing well, lots of people noticed it, even if I didn't and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So I had started to field a number of complaints about her performance and I'd seen some of this myself, but she was a very lovely person and it, I found it very difficult to confront her with her actual performance because she was just so nice and so helpful and pleasant. I found it very difficult to actually say, yeah, but here's what's really happening and here's what we need to do differently. And so I didn't. So at one of our monthly meetings, the cultural norm was the group confronted me about that and said, hey, uh, this is starting to affect lots of us because things are falling through the cracks. You need to deal with this because that's what we've agreed to, right? We all we kind of all signed the constitution. <laughs> we've got to do this. I said, sure, okay, I'll deal with it. Well, of course, by the next month, she was so nice, I didn't. I was a coward, and I didn't live up to the to the cultural expectation. And honestly, I was letting her down, too, because it was not fair to her. It just was difficult. I'll just say it that way. So at the next monthly meeting, they said, okay, this can't go on. This has to change. And they, they had basically written a plan. So this is what you're going to do. And again, these were my peers, not my supervisors. This is a peer leadership team. And they had basically said, this is the plan. Today, you're going to do X. And then tomorrow, there's this. And here's how we're going to help you. And that was the other important part. We all said, we own this. This is us. It's not you. Here's how we will help you. We'll come alongside you. We'll go with you to meet with her if that will help, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I won't go into any more details. You get the point. So that set things in motion to change the situation, to change her role in the organization. And ultimately, she didn't have a role in the organization. I'm sad to say it led to that. But that was the right thing for her. And she told me that at the meeting where her employment ended, she thanked me and said, you know, this really wasn't going to work out well for me. And she even said, I wish we'd have taken care of this sooner because the last couple of months have been painful for me. So this is an example of very intentional agreed upon cultural norms. As the Sherm definition said, we as leaders said, these will be the cultural norms. One of the leaders, me, failed to live up to those until confronted with that. So as a case of the culture driving what the culture said it needed to be successful and how it corrected the behavior of one of its members, again, me, and I'm not proud of that story. I'd like to say I was always a courageous leader, but in that case, I wasn't. But the culture made me be courageous, and that's a good thing. And that's one of the points I take away from this, is the culture can help all of us be better than we would be without it. Now, the reverse is the culture can also cause you to be worse. That's why it's so important, back to something Aubrey said about alignment, that your culture is aligned to what your organization needs. Because if not, it can make you be worse than that. And I think we can all think of examples where the culture caused people to be worse. They hung on to behaviors and practices that were unproductive, unhelpful, maybe even illegal in some cases. So the culture can, can do both. It can call you up to a higher level. It can also make you comfortable being 
less than you should be or need to be. I love that story, Frank. And I think the thing that really resonates with me at a personal level is the comment that that employee made about how, um, you know, this ultimately wasn't going to work out. And I almost wish we would have done this sooner because it's been painful. And I think that that is the reality that a lot of people who are not in good cultural fit situations experience. And um, in fact, there was a recent SHRM study, the Society of HR Management, that said that nearly three out of 10 Americans say that their work culture makes them irritable at home, which just hurts my heart when you think that we spend so much of our time at work, right, with our colleagues and our organizations, whether or not we're working in an office or at home, to think that people are taking that time and it's draining them, right? It's draining them because they're not a fit for the culture. Um, not only is that painful at a personal level, it is very unhelpful at an organizational level. So it really behooves all of us to pay a little bit more attention to this and lean into some of those difficult conversations for the benefit of everyone involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Aubrey, I love that you brought that into the conversation and that you are talking about just how it translates right into other spaces. So a lot of individuals think of culture and talking about culture in the workplace, but you know, culture is everywhere. And I think that it can impact your culture at home. It can impact other cultures. So it doesn't have boundaries, right? Or borders where I think sometimes it bleeds into other areas of your life when you are experiencing a toxic work culture. But I think on the flip side, when you're experiencing a great work culture, because you spend so much time with colleagues, you spend so much time in your organization, I think that you can also experience being energized and feeling good about the work that you're contributing and the spaces that you're in. And that can also translate very well. I was also reading a recent article in the Harvard Business Review that was titled Leaders Stop Rewarding Toxic Rock Stars. And um, I think that it's very important that we understand, you know, how is our culture doing that, right? How is our culture rewarding behaviors that, again, are incongruent with our intention or who we say we want to be as an organization? And for those individuals who uh, want to hear some some stats behind that in terms of money, I thought this was pretty interesting. The article, in the article, it stated that uh, toxic cultures cost U.S. companies almost $50 billion per year. And toxic culture was the single biggest predictor of attrition during the first six months of the Great Resignation. So when I read that, I was like, um, that number sounds about right. And also that being the single biggest predictor of attrition. Yeah, I could, I could see that. Yeah, I think that that's a great reminder that especially in the labor market today that we're seeing, culture is um, front and center, right? People are talking about it more. Um, managers, hiring managers and leaders are talking about how to invest in their culture, how to really shape their culture more intentionally. But job seekers and candidates are demanding um, much greater clarity about what the culture that they possibly will join looks like. But they're also making decisions that are more than just monetary based on culture. There was um, one statistic that I read that said approximately 70% of specifically millennials will take a pay cut in order to work for an organization that they feel reflects their um, social and, and cultural values. And so it's always played a big role, but I think it's sort of been the elephant in the room and now it's being talked about <laughs> as the elephant in the room. Right. Well, as a millennial, I can certainly attest to that and say that I could feel that already just in my bones and my soul. It's like the culture's got to be right, right? The, like how congruent are you and are you really showing up? Are you doing what you say you want to do? Does success really look like what you say you want it to look like? I don't think it's just millennials. You know, that's a that's a great stat or, you know, read. But at the end of the day, I think there are a lot of people across generations that are looking for something different that they maybe haven't talked about openly before, but they're talking about now as it relates to their culture and their expectations of their organization and what how they want to feel, how they want to be um, in that workspace. And so I think that the best thing we can do as leaders, as practitioners, in this space is to listen, is to listen to people when they are talking about what their needs are and what will help them thrive and show up the best version of themselves each and every day. I think it actually leads us very nicely into our next point, which is our organizational culture is either helping or hurting uh, the organization's achievement of purpose. 
And so there are obviously behaviors that we've talked about that could be helping or hurting an organization as they strive to achieve their purpose. But let's first address, of course, the relationship between an organization's purpose and an organization's culture. So Aubrey, what's the connection? What's the relationship between an organization's purpose and culture in your opinion? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. So, you know, we say that the culture eats strategy for breakfast, and that's true, but everything starts with purpose. Why do you exist? What is your reason for being as it relates to an organization or a role? And so having purpose is kind of that vision behind the why and the what, like why do you exist? And culture to me is how you put that into practice, right? So I think that it's important. A lot of people get hung up on talking about what people are experiencing um, day-to-day in their organization or the things that they kind of quote-unquote stand for. But your culture is what underpins that. So your purpose is why do you exist? Your culture is how do you actually go about doing what you're trying to achieve? And so I like to use analogies a lot. So I think of culture as kind of the foundation of the house. So it, it shifts around in the sense that Sometimes you want to paint the walls one color and another time you want to wallpaper a room. But the foundation is solid, right? It's it's built on a clear purpose and an intention there. And then how you go about operating and how you behave, the, the big C culture is our purpose. And then the little C culture is how we actually work, how teams contribute, how individuals show up, what they say, what they do, um, how they actually carry it out in day-to-day work. So I think that's directly related to how leaders play a role in the shaping and the molding of culture too. It doesn't all rest with them, right? We all play a role, um, but leaders do set kind of this tone of this is the kind of organization that we have. This is how we're going to do the work that's set up um, for us. Yeah, I love that analogy about the house, just simply because you're right, it ebbs and flows. There are different ways in terms of how you look at those different parts of the house. And uh, that perspective may shift as the culture shifts and changes. And But again, as the owner of that house, as the leader, you are or you're saying, this is how I, it needs to look. I want it to look. How do I set the tone in, in creating that culture? So Frank, would love to have you come back into this conversation. So how can organizations, in your opinion, use culture to achieve their purpose? I don't know that I would personally frame it in that way that culture achieves your purpose. Maybe I would say it this way. I think culture can reduce the drag that you feel as you're achieving your purpose. I'll put it in kind of aviation terms as a pilot and aviation enthusiast. You can fly to your destination with a lot of drag, leaving the landing gear down or, or whatever, have the aircraft not trimmed up well and still get to your destination, but you'll burn a lot of fuel getting there. It'll take you a lot longer. And so that represents a cultural mismatch with your purpose. You might still get there, but it's going to take longer and burn a lot more fuel. If you trim the plane up and reduce all the drag that you can, you'll burn a lot less fuel. You'll fly faster. It will seem easier. Plane just flies easier that way. So to me, the way I think about it is when your culture is aligned to your purpose, things happen smoothly, easily, you know, low friction, if you will. When you're swimming against your culture to achieve your purpose, it feels hard. So you can probably achieve your purpose either way. It just one will happen quickly, easily with less fuel burn. The other will be harder and take longer. So that's kind of the way I would think about it. And I was even going back to your HBR reference about the um, rewarding or tolerance even of a, of a, of a toxic uh, rock star, I think was the exact term. That in itself tells you a lot about the culture. A culture that would reward a toxic rock star, I mean, you, you've defined the culture right there. Now, I'll, I'll make a case that perhaps that aligns with their purpose. I would not like it if this were the case, but it might be that their purpose is to make the most amount of money and have no regard for their employees. And that purpose, you would reward a toxic rock star. Let's say a toxic rock star is best salesperson you got. They bring in the most clients, most revenue, and that's the only thing that you care about. Then you would do that. Most of us would say that's not going to be sustainable, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, fine. Maybe their purpose doesn't include sustainability. So, But what I, I guess I was getting back to is, just saying rewarding a toxic rock star 
has already defined your culture to a, to a huge extent right there. Because think of all the things that that implies about your culture. If you would do that, what that would look like and feel like to most people. But there might be a case where that fits their purpose. For most organizations, it will not because we're always thinking about sustainability and, and being fair to everyone and you know a bunch of other descriptors that would never fit with, with doing that. So that means there must be some other reason they're doing it. And I always come back to this other principle, and that is the current culture, wherever and whatever it is, exists because it serves someone's interest. Someone's interests are being served by the current culture. Even if it seems very mm-hmm. odd to some of us, somebody is getting served by that culture. So a good way to start peeling back the, the layers of the onion if you're charged with doing this for your organization is to figure out who or what is being served by the current culture and how aligned or misaligned is that with what we say our purpose, our mission, our reason for being is. And if you have the ability in an organization to be really honest, to get the people that can change it in a room and be really honest, because remember, some of the people in the room are probably being served by the current culture. And I'll say one last thing and then uh, let, let Aubrey come back in, but it's, it's one of the points or, or definitions Aubrey used. She talked about a cultural detractor. Remember, Aubrey, when you were using those terms of cultural additive and cultural subtractor and cultural detractor. Yeah. In some frameworks, a cultural detractor would be called a change agent. Think about that a second. A cultural detractor would also be called a change agent. Good point. So if you're trying to change a culture, the detractors are probably who you're looking for. If you're trying to keep it like it is, you probably don't have to do anything. <laughs> but if you want to change it, right. look for the detractors, because those are probably the change agents that, that will move you to a different culture. I think uh, you spawned an idea in me, Frank, that one of uh, my next analogy questions is, is your culture like WD-40, the actual WD-40, not the company, is your culture like WD-40 or is your culture like syrup? <laughs> because it's got to be one of those things based on what your purpose is. Is it making your life easier or is it making your life harder? Right. That's friction. I mean, you know, you're, you're reducing friction. But we also talk about that friction could be positive, right? I, I, going back to Frank's story and the pressure that your peers, your peer leaders put on you in creating that friction. You were already experiencing some inner turmoil and friction uh, because you weren't aligning to what the culture was, which was addressing low performance in a way that would support and that would help others thrive. But again, there was still some friction there that was created even by your peers to say, hey, there's, this doesn't seem to be in alignment with what we said we were going to do. And so we're going to put a little pressure on you. We're going to create a little bit more friction to help you. And so I love all the analogies that we've talked about, but also how we are are pulling together the importance of being clear on our purpose and how that impacts and influences the change process. So would love to, Aubrey, we were talking a little bit about some examples of how this looks or has looked with other companies and how other companies have created that friction. And you had a really great example with Zappos. So can you kind of talk uh, about that and kind of just your thoughts on their approach to ensuring that we're not only clear on our purpose as as leaders and we're setting the tone, but also the rest of the organization, our employees um, are clear on, on our purpose and they also are given the opportunity to state when they're not clear or when they're not aligned. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what we always really want is we want there to be alignment between the purpose that we've espoused, why we exist, and the culture that we want to create. We've got to be clear on our purpose. We have to understand why it is we exist and kind of what fuels us as an organization and what fuels us as a team and what fuels us as an individual person. And so this was, goodness, probably a decade ago, um, but hopefully some of you might be familiar with Zappos.com and you might think, oh, well, the purpose of Zappos.com is to sell shoes, um, which it does. It now sells a bunch more things than just shoes, but it originally began as an online shoe marketplace. And Zappos.com did a great job. They had really high sales. And when they thought about, well, why do we exist? What is our purpose? You might think that the answer was, well, to sell shoes. And that is not the answer that their leadership came up with. The answer that their leadership came up with said, we are the best at customer service. 
That is what we are known for, is what we are great at, is what we are going to hire people for. That is what drives us. It doesn't matter if we're selling shoes or we're selling water bottles or we're selling backpacks, all of which they do now sell, I believe. <laughs> so <laughs> that was their that was their purpose. And they wanted their purpose to be so tightly aligned with the culture that they were espousing in terms of really being driven by an aptitude for customer service, a passion for customer service. We've all had encounters with people on the customer service line that you're like, man, that was wonderful. And we have all had encounters where we're like, really? That's the best you can do for me? I mean, so there is really a culture that they are trying to build with the people that they bring on to Zappos. And they're so tightly tied to that, that the pressure that they create is one in which in the first, I want to say it's the first six weeks on the job when someone's brought on board, they give you an opportunity and they say, is this the right fit for you? You've now sort of drank a little bit of the Kool-Aid or it's at least been sitting on the table for you to try. <laughs> um, and if you don't want to try this Kool-Aid, if this is not the thing for you, that's okay. We don't want you to. We don't want you to drink this Kool-Aid so much that we will pay you $2,000 to leave. Because we don't want you to be here if you are not a cultural fit or a cultural addition to our place. And it's not a personal thing at all, right? It's not like, oh, I just don't right. like you. It's that there's, su there's such a tight alignment between why they exist and how they are supporting their culture and who they're bringing on board. Um, I wish that more organizations had that degree of clarity on that. And I also wish that more organizations were as proactive about um, ensuring that as they built their teams, as they built their organization, they had that finger on the pulse of mm -hmm. how might our culture um, be shifting? How are we adding to it? How are we ensuring that there is that continued alignment? Well, and when you think about the cost of having employees stay at the organization who aren't aligned and clear on purpose and the cost of having them make that decision up front a little I, earlier on in their I, journey. I mean, I think it was 50 billion. Is that the number that you million <laughs> yeah. dollars compared to 2000 uh, that uh, Zappos <laughs> was willing to give employees who could sense. And I mean, let's be honest. I've had experiences where I've walked into a room and you felt the culture maybe being different or there there was a, there was something in the atmosphere that felt different. And so you feel that as an employee as a member of an organization you feel when there is a difference or maybe there's things that aren't aligned to maybe your own values or your own purpose and paying attention to that acknowledging Zappos acknowledging that and saying you know again you know enough about our organization to know what we're set out to do and so now we feel like you have all the information at your fingertips to make an informed decision as to whether or not you want to continue on this journey with us and be a part of achieving our purpose. And I think that what we're getting back to is what we talked about earlier is like intentionality around culture, intentionality around purpose. And sometimes it may take modifying our culture to better align it to our purpose and that is where gaining that clarity, gaining that understanding can help in making sure that there's that alignment. And so, Frank, I believe you mentioned earlier that there is a culture that you intend to create, and then there is a culture that is unintentionally created through maybe a variety of different messages and um, behaviors and things of that nature. And so uh, what intentional things can leaders and employees do to achieve better alignment, in your opinion? That's a good and difficult question. I <laughs> hope I can shed a little bit of light on it. Part of this, uh, to me, at, at the individual level, whether you're the CEO of a big organization or you're just the average person walking down the street, is the, you know, the gap between what we intend and what we say we are and what we really are. And we all have a gap. Every one of us aspires to be and do something, and we have a gap in, in the reality. So that happens multiplied across the organization by the size of the organization, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000. So you've got lots of variables there. In fact, in your uh, introductory story with Tina, I was thinking of how many variables were at play in Tina's story. Some the organization intentionally put out, others were purely Tina's interpretation of something, her perception of, of things. Yep. Mm -hmm. And they're all equally valid. I'm not saying one's right or wrong, but think how many variables. Now multiply that times the size of an organization. I think at children's 16,000 or so at 
you know, other organizations, 100,000 or more. So think how many variables there are working at once in creating the gap between what we intend and what actually happens. There are a huge number of variables. And you don't control all those. I don't even control the ones I should control. It's just human nature. You can't do that. So what I think can can help us, though, is back to, to purpose, starting at the individual level and or at the organizational level and saying, does this behavior, this personal behavior that I'm exhibiting as I run this meeting or do whatever I'm doing as, a, as an employee, align with our purpose and move us towards it? Or is it creating that drag I talked about? If I got the landing gear down and saying, why are we flying slow? Well, because you're, you're in the way, you're creating drag. So what I always tried to do is what I'm doing, saying, displaying, aligned to our purpose and will help move me and others towards that? Or is it really going the other way? And in fact, th- this may be somewhat of an oversimplification, but most of us like to simplify things in life. Every decision we make, every behavior we display is doing one of those two things. It's moving us closer to what we say we want to be and do and achieve, or it's moving us further away. That's really about all it is. So you can start that way and say, as a work team, as a small group, what are we doing that, that's dragged, that's holding us back from achieving what we said we're here to do? And alternatively, what's propelling us forward that we could do more of? So just some quick checks at the personal, at the work team level, and then ultimately the large organization. What are we doing that's dragged, that's holding us back? What are we doing that's accelerating us? And how can we do more of one and less of the other? And then is there anything missing? So that's the things you're doing. Is there something we could add to that uh, an activity, a behavior that we need to put it, put in the mix that just isn't there today. And, and back to the $50 billion number that you quoted, I think that's a vast underestimate of the actual cost because what it probably doesn't uh, account for in any dollar sense, because maybe you can't, is the emotional drain that flying with a lot of drag creates. And when you've yeah, been in a team, right. like I had the privilege of being with so little emotional drain, it was just fun and easy. And it just, well, uh, it's been quoted by lots of people. When work doesn't feel like work, you got it. That emotional drain, which you can't put a dollar value on, when it goes to zero or very low, boy, it's fun. I, I just wish everyone could experience that. And I thank you too for helping me experience it. And thank you, Frank, for, for bringing that example up. I would definitely agree with those sentiments and uh, still do because there are so many opportunities throughout the day where I feel like my team members, my colleagues are, like you said, they have my back and I'm able to return that favor as well. And there's this, the safety and there's this trust that we have. Uh, one That's another word that comes up a lot when talking about culture is trust. It is very easy to detect whether or not it is a trust-based culture or a fear-based culture, which I think is the opposite of a trust-based culture. And another thing that you said, it's, it's really about relationship. I often say and, and make the comparison that we are each in a relationship with each of our organizations, right? We're in a relationship. And how does that relationship feel, right? What does that relationship look like? Um, does the relationship feel good or bad. And I, I think there's different, obviously, there's different types of relationships that employees have with their leaders, with other employees, and with those they serve that can essentially lead to bad or good outcomes. And so um, recently, I read a Gallup article that really was talking about the three types of relationships that can be intentionally cultivated within an organization. And that can ultimately lead to more positive outcomes when we talk about that with those three different relationships. So I'm going to walk through these because I I would love to get Frank and Aubrey, your thoughts and your perspectives on each of these relationships and, and really also your advice on how organizations can intentionally lean into building better relationships. Let's first kick off and start with the first relationship, which is the relationship between the employee and the leader. 
And so we've talked about earlier that leaders, obviously, they have the power to set the tone, to set the priorities, and to create these talented teams, like the one we talk about being a part of. Uh, But it's individual employees that often are far from the boardroom. They're far from the the meetings where these decisions are being made around culture. and, And they really don't have that connection all the time. When we talk about the employee leader relationship and you think about just your experiences, Frank and Aubrey, what what are your what's your advice or what are some what's your perspective on that and how organizations can better steward that relationship? I'll jump in if that's okay, Alicia. Two things come to mind instantly. One is the humility of the leader will be the biggest I'll say tone setter since you use that term in that equation. The leader with the appropriate sense of humility and a well-controlled self-interest will set the tone that will make the difference. Then from a, call it a technique for lack of a better term, an approach that I've used for many years when I was the leader in this equation was to ask a really simple question. And it doesn't matter what the answer is because it starts us down the path that you said of listening. And the question that I ask is, why are you here? That's it. Why are you here? And answers have ranged from, I needed a job with benefits and this is it, all the way to the purpose of this organization just resonates with my soul and then everything in between. But the point is, if the answer is, I just needed a job and this was it, okay, great. That's a great place to start. We got a point to connect and I can start listening to how to help build from there to expand and broaden that as the base, but that's the base we're starting with. So The other answer that I often got was silence. So I might get a variety of answers, but I'd say about a third of the time, the answer was silence because the person had never even asked themselves that question. But even that's an important place to start because now we're saying, okay, that's an important thing. Why are you here? If you don't know the answer, let's start working on one because there better be one. Because if you don't know the answer to that, it's mostly going to lead to to bad things for you and the organization. So let's, let's have one. I've also had cases where when someone answered it, we saw immediately the disconnect between the organization's purpose and the culture that was attendant. And that caused them to say, you know what, since we've had this discussion, I'm not sure I should stay here. And I'd say, you know, I'm not sure either. You should be thinking about that because we've raised some kind of serious questions. So that's okay. Kind of back to the Zappos. It's okay. Not everybody works here. It's okay. Most of the world doesn't work here, wherever here is. So I just start with that simple, why are you here listening jump off point? I think that's a great one. Um, I think that listening and, and starting to build those relationships is a key responsibility for leaders. And what I would encourage organizations to think about is how do you lean into providing leaders with the expectation and the space to do that? That in many organizations, uh, we think of leaders or leaders are thought of as tactical masters. And I don't mean to downplay tactics or belittle their importance, right? It's important that boxes get checked and systems run the way that they're supposed to. But what's more important is the ability for leaders to work through their people. So not just checking all of the boxes, but being able to connect with and relate to their employees in such a way that to Frank's point, they can have those vulnerable conversations and they can build that trust to say, if this isn't the right fit for you, I want what's best for you. And that might mean you move to a different part of this organization. It might mean that you leave this organization altogether. It might mean that you have an honest conversation with me as your leader and I recognize that, you know what, I can show up for you in a better, different way. So I would encourage organizations and, and you know, what I call capital L leaders, right? Big leaders in the organization who are responsible for setting the tone and the expectations for this to lean into what the real role of a leader is, what it should look like, and what are the things that we as organizational leaders need to provide? And also, what do we need to move out of the way (laughs) to enable leaders to really focus in on those things? Well, Aubrey, when you were saying that, um, you know, you were speaking my language as it relates to leaders. And, you know, I love Frank's point about humility, like looking in the mirror 
And if you're also going to ask your employees, why are you here? You should be able to answer that question yourself. It's always important to have that self-reflection, self-awareness, and modeling of the behavior that you want to see in your employees. I mean, one of the best ways to strengthen a relationship is by demonstrating the level of character that you want your employees to demonstrate in their day-to-day as they engage and interact with other employees. And right. so that's actually the the next relationship that is extremely important is the relationship between colleagues and making sure that that relationship also is stewarded and cultivated in a meaningful way. And the article really honed in on the importance of trust as it relates to the relationship between colleagues. It's because employees need confidence that their coworkers are looking out for them. Like we talked about earlier about our team, I think that was another, of course, huge factor to why our team was successful and continues to be successful in the in the world that we work in is is because we have that trust and we know that we are there to support one another in the many different ways that we need support each and every day. Yeah, I love that. And I would focus on two ways in which I think that people and organizations can lean in to building that relationship from employee to employee. One is the creation of a team charter and team norms. And we don't need to overthink this. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. But just simply taking the time collectively as as a team and as leader of a team to think about everything that Frank said. And in fact, when I was a member of Frank's team, he did. He sat us down and said, why are you here? (laughs) It was, it it did generate a lot of conversation. And we all said, no one's ever asked us that before. So I think that the discussion around why do we exist as a team and also what do we expect from one another and putting pen to paper is a really, really helpful exercise to see one, where there's some variance, but also to get commitment from the team to say, yep, we're all on board. We're all on the same ship and we know where the destination is and we all want to be here. It really gives people the opportunity to have that dialogue about, is this the right fit for me? Am I in agreement with this? Is there something else that I need? So team charters and norms. The other thing that I would encourage organizations to lean into, and in my career, I have not seen it done consistently, team interviews. Team interviews are huge, particularly team interviews without the leader, (laughs) because the leader does sometimes shift the the discussion and kind of the vibe and the degree of of trust in the room. But you know, when somebody joins your team or when you're considering joining a team, you may have at the end of the day not too much face time with the leader, but you can bet that you're going to have a whole lot of face time and interaction with your team members. And so seeing and having the opportunity to kind of test those waters and have a real vulnerable transparent conversation is really helpful, not just for a candidate, but is really helpful for the team that's already in place to say, is this person really going to fit into the culture that we have? Are they going to be a cultural addition? And so weighing in um, and leaning into the expertise that your team already brings, not just from their responsibilities of their actual roles, but the responsibility that they have and the contributions that they have to your team culture, I think is a really important takeaway. And I would add to that, you know, when you said um, a cultural ad, I think that we don't mean, just to clarify, we don't mean sameness, right? We By cultural ad, I think we mean Absolutely. like, will this person bring what we need as a team to help us reach our next level, to help us excel, to help us reach our goals? And so even in our experience, Aubrey, when we work together with team interviews, I think we even sat down as a team to talk about like, what does that look like? What does that mean? What would an ad be to our team to ensure that we're going to be challenged Absolutely. in the right ways. And yeah. so I, I I love to emphasize that when we're talking about cultural fit, I think it's important for us to know that that also means inviting someone in that may be very diverse from how your team currently maybe operate or, or think or come up with solutions. And so making sure that you are challenging yourselves and your thinking because there's so much opportunity to inviting new team members into your team that could most definitely help you reach another level. 
Absolutely. And I think that you hit a really important point, Alicia, which is by having more frequent conversations about culture and about purpose, we are much better able then to identify what it is we need. If culture is something that you only talk about when you have a problem or culture is something you only talk about when some leader says, we're talking about culture right now, that doesn't put you in a really great position to be informed about what it is you need, what it is you value. And so the more frequently you have those discussions, the better able you are to identify what those needs are and to lean into, you know what, we need a divergent perspective on X. And these are the reasons why. So, and it's just, it's a muscle. It gets easier and more fun, honestly, (laughs) the more that you do it. Right, right. I I would definitely agree. Now, the last relationship is the relationship between employee and the individuals we serve. So, of course, um, employee and the customer, patient and families, other people that we serve in relationship with the institution, with the organization. And so, Frank, I didn't know if you were going to touch on that a little bit or touch on that last point. If I might just go back to the previous one just for a second, and then we can roll forward. The word that I think is still missing in that discussion is accountability, because we can have team norms, we can have charters and all kind of written documents that Aubrey mentioned, but unless we include accountability as one of the elements of our culture, the rest of that tends to struggle, because we've all been at organizations where lots of things were said. They were on framed posters in the hallway, but there was no accountability for failing to meet those norms or expectations or purposes. So I wanted to make sure the word accountability got a little bit of airtime as we really talk about all three of these categories for that matter. Accountability is sort of what makes it happen. Right. So when it comes then, Alicia, to what does this look like around those we serve, so we can call them customers or patients if you're in healthcare, thinking of myself as a customer now, I'm immediately almost always challenged, and maybe it's just because I have like purpose on the brain, with gosh, was the product or service I just received aligned to what this organization says its purpose is? That usually is the first disconnect I see. And depending on the severity of the disconnect, I might write it off to just someone having a bad day or or whatever. But other times it's so egregiously opposite of what they say they exist for or their their purpose. I'm not sure I ever want to transact with this operation anymore because They say A, but they're Z, Mm -hmm. and I'm not sure I can reconcile that or or that I should or or that I need to. And then, of course, the other word that that Aubrey brought up a lot, which will play into this, is trust, because guess what happens to my trust now? If you say A and I experience Z, my trust in you now is darn close to zero, and I may not even want to get it back, let alone, you know, you can say, well, can we get it back? Oh, I don't want it back. You know, I'm going somewhere else. So... As organizations, we have to think about, you know, the irrevocable loss of trust that we might create if we portray ourselves as A and the experience is Z. We know that it can always happen because lots of variables again. But if consistently your organization is presenting itself as A but manifesting itself as Z, you'll lose the trust of everyone that you hope to serve. So when you look at customer survey data or all the ways that big retail organizations or hospitals measure how they're doing, you should really be asking yourself, how big a disconnect are we creating between what we say we are and what people experience? And we all know which one of those we believe. It's the latter always. And if the patient experience is terrible, that's real to the person. What you have you know, chiseled on the front of your institution's door really doesn't matter. In fact, it makes it worse because it's, <laughs> it's, it's pointing out the contrast. So really pay attention to what you're saying you are and what you're manifesting as. And again, that goes right to the individual all the way up to the largest organization. And I think also as a customer for me, you know, I've even made the statement when I've had a bad experience with an employee, I said, oh, they don't like their job. Or on the flip side, I've said, oh, they love their job. And you could see it on employees. When you are walking around, whether you're in an organization or whether you're like at a restaurant or you are, you, I think even as a customer, you feel it. Like you feel in the atmosphere, whether the employees there like being there and want to be there or not. It definitely translates um, into the experience that, that your customers have when your employees are having a wonderful experience. 
you know, it sounds a little kumbaya to say, and I know other leadership authors and researchers have talked about this, but I do firmly believe that organizations that really invest in taking care of their employees Mm -hmm. see those benefits, see that ripple effect of employees then wanting to give that same level of care and commitment and intention to the customers or the clients or patients and families that they serve. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Frank and Aubrey. You've made this a very inspiring and engaging conversation, and I've appreciated uh, every aspect of this. I didn't know if uh, Frank, Aubrey, are there any like parting words, our last words that you would like to share just to wrap up our conversation about what's culture got to do with it? I would go full circle to where we began, and that is you always have a culture. You already have one. Whether you purposely acknowledge it or can identify it, you have one. Because even the lack of a culture is a culture if you kind of think of it in that way. So you, you already have one. The key question is, is it serving your purpose? Is it helping you accelerate towards your, your destination? And if it's not, first of all, get clear on what your destination is. So that Where are we really going? What is our purpose? Why, the, the why are we here question. And then say, which part of these set of norms and behaviors are accelerating us toward that and which ones are, are not. Then try to make the changes. And I know changing a culture is, is a whole nother podcast, which we aren't going to do today. <laughs> but that's what you'll be embarking on is once you've said, where are we uh, and, and where do we need to be, then you have to make those changes. So that's what I would just come full circle and say, you already have a culture. How is it serving you and how is it serving your customers, clients and patients? I don't think I can say it better than that. (laughs) I think uh, what's culture have to do with it? Uh, A lot. Culture has a lot to do with it. My advice would be don't be intimidated by culture. Sometimes something's not a good cultural fit and that's 100% okay. Um, But lean into the conversation and lean into the reflection that Frank is talking about. Why do we exist? What is our culture saying versus what are we doing to support that or hinder that. It's only through having those conversations and those really meaningful discussions with people that we'll start to understand where to go next. Right. Wow. Well, thank you so much for those uh, those words of encouragement. I think that uh, those were very helpful. And Aubrey, thanks so much for joining our conversation today. Thank you so much for having me. It was very fun to let my nerd flag fly and talk about culture with you. Awesome. And I love I love when it's flying. It's awesome. And Frank, I am so excited. The pilot joined us today. Thank you so much for the conversation and just for your nuggets of wisdom. You never let me down. <laughs> it was an honor to be here and, and truly a pleasure. And I thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Well, I also would like to add this. So this is something, uh, again, I read in a, a Wall Street Journal, but it was interesting because I think it was a great depiction, a simple way of just describing culture. And the quote said, culture is how employees' hearts and stomachs feel about Monday morning on Sunday night. I mean, wow. I was like, that's probably the simplest way to describe how culture impacts us. And so how are your employees feeling? How do you feel about your culture? How do you feel about your culture and going into work that next morning? Is it a positive feeling? Is it energy that you feel? Is it excitement that you feel? Or is it something different? And if you're a leader out there and you have a way to influence or set the tone for your culture, I encourage you to think about how your employees feel. And how you can influence or change that if it's not congruent with your purpose. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Elevate L&D. This is your host, Elisha Hill, with Frank Burroughs and Aubrey Witte. Look forward to you joining us next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Elevate L&D with Elisha Hill, Frank Burroughs, and Aubrey Witte. Next time, host Dan Link and Brooke Hopkins discuss choosing an LMS. Have a topic you'd like to hear on the podcast? Email your comments or suggestions to podcast at gcatd.org. Thanks for listening.